from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, September 18th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Mitt Romney takes flack for saying Palestinians have no interest in peace with Israel, but some argue he was just stating the obvious. That statement sounds like a pretty good summary of President Obama's approach to Middle East peace right now. And later, the perils of using Spanish on the campaign trail. When someone comes who has absolutely no personal connection and says, you know, hola, bienvenido, and they say it in a really terrible accent, I think it can be offensive and patronizing. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Mitt Romney is having a rough couple of days as excerpts of his leaked comments to a gathering of wealthy donors get a national airing. Last night, all the attention was on Romney dismissing 47 percent of Americans as dependent on the government. Today, it's on the Republican candidate's comments on Palestinians having, quote, no interest in peace with Israel. In this part of the leaked video, Romney suggests that Mideast peace efforts would languish under his administration. You move things along the best way you can. You hope for some degree of stability, but you recognize this is going to remain an unsolved uh, problem. In case you couldn't quite hear him, Romney said this about Mideast diplomacy, quote, you move things along the best way you can. You hope for some degree of stability, but you recognize that this is going to remain an unsolved problem. Peter Fever worked on the staff of the National Security Council under both Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. We asked him what he made of Romney's words. That statement sounds like a pretty good summary of President Obama's approach to Middle East peace right now. Uh, Of course, President Obama came into office with much higher hopes. He had campaigned on the premise that we could move forward rapidly on Israeli-Palestinian peace process. He would lean on Israel more heavily than previous presidents had, and it failed as a tactic. And indeed, the peace process was paralyzed and has languished for the last several years. Governor Romney's comments, to the extent I understand them, were reflecting that same kind of pessimistic outlook that neither side seems poised for the breakthrough peace agreement that everyone would like to see. It's also, I think, bracing for some people, and maybe some people who think appropriately bracing, for a characterization of the Mideast peace process to be so blunt you know, you can't unring the bell. Is this the kind of characterization that will alienate parties to the conflict if he becomes president? It will be a comment that he will have to go some lengths with the Palestinian counterparts to reassure them that he will work for their interests as well as he will work for the interests of the Israelis as well as he'll work for the interests of the Americans. So he it probably will require some outreach effort. Will Mitt Romney have to walk it back? 
I expect that we're going to see more clarification from the Romney campaign on what the governor's views are on the peace process. And I would be very surprised if he said there's absolutely nothing we can do to improve the lives of the Palestinians on the ground, nothing we can do to improve the lives of Israelis on the ground. Uh, we should just wash our hands of it. If he says that, then then he really does have a very different policy than President Obama or than the mainstream of U.S. foreign policy. I suspect what he's going to say is we shouldn't put all of our hopes in a big bang peace treaty, which is what President Obama did. Instead, we should be doing small steps on the ground that would improve the daily lives and that would build the trust that would be needed down the road for a big bang peace treaty. You are not an official advisor to the Romney campaign as an unofficial advisor. What would you recommend right now? Well, as an unofficial advisor, I would say that Governor Romney needs to speak forthrightly and clearly about his views on foreign policy across the board, but especially, of course, on the Middle East. The American people want to see that the person they elect to be president is ready to be commander in chief. And to do that, you have to show your command of the issues and you have to explain to them your vision for America and the world. The Governor Romney did a lot of that early in the primary campaign, has not done as much in recent months as I think he needs to. Peter Fever is professor of political science and public policy mm-hmm. and a Bass Fellow at Duke University. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. As you might imagine, Mitt Romney's comments about Israel and the Palestinians are getting extra attention in the Middle East. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem has been hearing some of the reaction. Many Israelis would agree with a lot of what Mitt Romney had to say about Israel, the Palestinians, and the dim prospects of achieving a two-state solution. In fact, Romney's reasons for saying that, quote, the pathway to peace is almost unthinkable to accomplish sound similar to the talking points of the current right-wing Israeli government. But when they come from a man who could be the next president of the United States, they set a dangerous precedent, says Gershon Baskin, an Israeli political analyst. I think this is quite shocking in terms of the fact that here's a candidate for the office of president this late in the game. He's not in the primaries now. He's is actually putting himself in a position of saying that American foreign policy is written on this issue is written in Jerusalem. Baskin is a veteran peace activist and a true believer in the idea of two states for two peoples. He concedes that Barack Obama fell short of his lofty goals laid out for this region in the early days of his first term. But Baskin says Romney's comments reveal a fundamental difference in the way the two candidates view the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think the Obama view is that this conflict is resolvable. The parties have to want to do it in order for it to be resolvable. And in terms of figuring out how to do it, the technical answers, the the issues that need to be decided on, the roadmap for achieving peace is out there and is well known. Um, And what Romney is coming along and saying is, no, the solutions that have been proposed in the past simply won't work. There's uh, nothing to begin with. What Baskin says he hears in Romney's comments is that Israelis need to forget about the possibility of ever achieving peace with their Arab neighbors or with the Palestinians. Polling data over the years show that a sizable portion of the Israeli public has held on to hope for peace. Romney did not lay out an alternative to the two-state model other than to suggest the U.S. should kick the can down the road and try to maintain the status quo. Baskin says that option has real-life implications for this region and the people who live here.
What it means is if there will not be a Palestinian state created next to Israel, then Israel will continue to control all the territories between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, meaning that the two and a half million Palestinians plus in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem will remain under Israeli control without having political rights. Palestinian analyst Daoud Kotab watched the Romney video posted by Mother Jones magazine. He says Palestinians tend to suspect that U.S. officials are less than honest when they speak publicly about the Middle East conflict. Nonetheless, Kotab says these comments are worrisome. When a person like Mitt Romney, you know, a major candidate in the U.S. elections, states point blank, that Palestinians are not interested in peace without providing any proof, as if this was a, a commonly understood uh, statement. That's very scary. Kutab says the leaders of the U.S.-backed Palestinian Authority in the West Bank will not be happy about Romney's comments in the video, starting with the PA prime minister. Mitt Romney met with uh, Salam Fayyad, and, and either Salam Fayyad did not present him with convincing evidence that Palestinians want peace, or he was sleeping as Salam Fayyad was talking. Kutab says Washington's Arab allies would be alarmed if U.S. policy shifted away from supporting a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians, while at the same time, Iran and Iranian-backed Hamas, which controls the Gaza Strip, will welcome Romney's statements because they appear to bolster their argument that Washington is not an honest broker when it comes to Middle East peace. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Mitt Romney also made some comments about Mexico to those donors in the video. Romney's dad was born in Mexico. He joked if his father had Mexican parents, he'd have a better shot at winning the election. But there are other ways that Mitt Romney and President Obama are trying to woo Latino voters. They're sprinkling their campaigns with Spanish, with mixed results, as the world's Jason Margolis reports. This summer, Mitt Romney appeared on a Cuban-American radio program in Florida. Romney was on his way to a fruit juice stand, so the host asked him, what are your favorite types of fruit? Here's Romney's answer. I am a a big fan of mango, papaya, and guava. (laughs) The chuckles are because Romney said he likes papaya. That might not strike you as all that funny, but papaya is Cuban slang for vagina. Now, come on, let's be mature and fair here. Who besides a Cuban or Cuban-American would know that? But that's not the only Spanish slip-up from Romney. His most notorious one came five years ago when he was giving an impassioned anti-Castro speech in Miami. Here's Cuban-American Joe Garcia in a Miami cafe describing the moment. And, you know, at the end of the speech, Romney, you know, had the crowd fired up and he ended, Patria o muerte venceremos, the nation or death that we shall win, which is the closing line of all of Fidel Castro's speeches, right? It's a great line, Uh, unfortunately for Romney. It was the wrong line in this crowd. But Romney is far from alone having problems with Spanish. Here's Hillary Clinton in 2008. Si se puede is right. Yes, we can. She meant to say si se puede instead of si se pueda. Not a huge deal, but it is among the most famous American political phrases in Spanish. Then there's the downright bad Spanish from Newt Gingrich. In los Estados Unidos, es importante hablar bien el inglés. But at the end of the day, does it really matter if an English-speaking politician has a bad accent or messes up a few words? 
In Denver, I met American voters Maria Young, originally from Mexico, and Martha Caban from Puerto Rico. I asked them what they thought of candidates who mangle their Spanish. I will say a couple of brownie points, yes, because at least <laughs> they tried. Uh, at least they're honoring and respecting us and trying to do something to connect with us. But what if they really, really screw it up, like Romney did in Miami? It, it would not matter. I am used to, to bad translations. <laughs> and that's coming from an Obama supporter. I think it can come across as patronizing. Christine Marquez-Hudson of the Mikasa Resource Center in Denver says even if a politician's Spanish is perfect, if the message is inauthentic, she doesn't want to hear it. When someone comes out who has absolutely no personal connection and says, hola, bienvenido, and they say it in a really terrible accent, I think it can be offensive. But Marquez Hudson doesn't see this from either Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. She says Romney's connection to Latin America gives his attempts at Spanish some authenticity. And she appreciates when President Obama uses his favorite Spanish phrase. Si se puede. The thing about Obama is that he was a community organizer, and Si Se Puede is a community organizing chant. And so that's the connection for me. Presidential candidates and their surrogates have been speaking some Spanish as far back as the 1960s. Queridos amigos, les habla la esposa del senador John F. Kennedy. That's Jackie Kennedy in a campaign ad from 1960. Since then, many presidential candidates have tried some Spanish here and there, most notably President George W. Bush. Here he is a few months into his presidency in 2001. Buenos días. Un saludo muy especial a todos las personas President Bush was applauded by many for speaking Spanish, though many also made fun of his Texas accent. So at the end of the day, what's a candidate to do? Try a little Spanish, not try? Why bother if it can result in endless ridicule? I asked Diane McCreel what she would advise. McCreel works with the language company Berlitz and directs the company's global leadership training program. I would inoculate the audience. I would say to them right up front, I would start out by saying, uh, I want to apologize for any mistakes that I make, and then say a few words. And then the next step would be to ask their permission to continue in English. And there is one other way to make absolutely certain you can get your Spanish correct pre-record the message. Soy Mitt Romney y apruebo este mensaje. Para El Mundo, soy Jason Margolis. We have some vintage video of former First Lady Jackie Kennedy speaking Spanish. Check it out at theworld.org. Coming up on The World, the hike of a lifetime from Georgia in the USA to Morocco in Northern Africa. Our story coming up. This is The World on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Gandhi made the simple spinning wheel the icon of his revolution, and that legacy continues to this day. The garment industry is the second largest industry in India after agriculture and employs some 35 million people. Many American T-shirts are made in the Indian state of Tamil Nadu. The place is home to thousands of garment factories and cotton spinning mills. As the industry has grown, the spinning mills have moved from cities to rural areas where labor is cheap and plentiful, and it's brought employment to some of the poorest communities on earth, but at a cost. 
Michael May reports from the village of Raja Kopati. Chitra Davi was 17 years old when she went to work in the mills. She's now 21. Chitra has dark, serious eyes and wears a ruby sari. She lives in the village of Raja Kopati, a tangle of small concrete homes, dirt paths, and colorful Hindu shrines. Unlike many rural girls, Chitra went to high school, graduating from 10th grade. But then, she says, her father, an electrician, hurt his leg and had to stop working. Chitra says the wounds on her father's leg were slow to heal, and the medical bills piled up. So she quit school and went to work in a nearby spinning mill. On her first day of work, Chitra signed a contract. She didn't read it, and it turned out she'd unwittingly agreed to what's known as the Sumangali scheme. Sumangali means happily married woman in Tamil. Under the contract, the mill withholds a portion of a girl's paycheck each month with the promise that after four years it will be returned as a lump sum for her dowry, usually between $500 and $1,000. Dowries are technically illegal in India, but they're still prevalent. Sumangali appeals to poor families who struggle to save money, but it comes with strict conditions. She says she couldn't take any time off. She routinely worked 12, sometimes 16 hours. Her take-home pay was around $2 a day, less than the minimum wage. The mill was stifling, and the long hours often left her nauseous and feverish. But she says the mill wouldn't let her take a sick day. A nurse there would give her a shot and send her back to work. Still, Chitra says she had it better than girls who traveled long distances to work. Those girls lived in a hostel run by the mill. Chitra says they were rarely allowed out, and never without a chaperone. Even phone calls were monitored. And if a girl left before her smongly contract was up, she'd lose all the money. It seems like a form of indentured servitude. The Sumangali scheme is a fairly recent phenomenon. Before India's economy began booming in the 1990s, most mills were like this government-run factory in the city of Coimbatore. The factory pays decent wages, has the latest equipment, and it's open and airy. But this mill survives on government subsidies. Most other urban mills closed years ago. In their place, many have sprung up in rural areas, where land and labor are cheap. Ramesh is an activist at the local nonprofit SAVE based in Tirupur. He says rural families are often happy to send their daughters to work in the mills. Normally the male child will go for school. So they prefer girl children to get employed somewhere to support the family. He says parents insist on their daughters living in hostels with tight security to minimize the risk they will elope or become pregnant. And the mills have exploited the situation. They prefer these girls because they are unmarried and they don't demand anything. They are submissive in nature. In 2010, a Dutch newspaper ran an expose about Sumangali that provoked an outcry by Western activists and consumers. The article singled out a mill in Tamil Nadu that worked with the budget fashion brand H&M. Linda Johansson of H&M visited the mill to encourage the owners to end Sumangali. She says H&M only cuts off a supplier as a last resort because that rarely changes anything. So we gave this company um, the opportunity to give them a period of time to change the system if they wanted to. The mill refused, so H&M took its business elsewhere. Many multinational brands have tried to get Sumangali out of their supply chain, but it persists for several reasons. For one, the mills only sell about 30% of their cotton to name brands with factories in India. 
The rest is sold to Indian companies or exported to places like China or Bangladesh. Again, H&M's Johansson. I visited spinning mills myself where I was told that, you know, if you come here and ask too many questions or have too many demands, we will just increase our portion of the business for export or for the domestic market. In other words, it's going to take more than an outcry from Western consumers who like their clothes cheap, fashionable, and politically correct. NGOs and brands have formed roundtables with labor unions, government officials, and mill associations to tackle the issue. But it's been difficult even to reach agreement on the scope of the problem. Salvaraju is head of SIMA, the oldest mill association in southern India. He sits in his office in the industrial city of Coimbatore and clicks through photos of what he says is a typical hostel. So this is a dormitory where the girls uh, live you know, inside. This is lady security. They will not allow others to get in. They yearn computer education. It's impossible to verify how typical it is. The mills have stopped letting journalists or NGOs visit the hostels. Even government officials only make sporadic inspections. Salvaraji says SIMA enforces strict guidelines among its members. He points out that some mills give workers the choice to work for monthly wages, but the girls insist on the Sumangali scheme. He calls it a superannuation fund. They want to have savings. They want to save whatever they earn. What they do is, if you give it as a monthly wages, my parents will take it and they will spend it. If you give it as a you know superannuation fund, then I'll have a sizable amount which will help me to you know settle. Salvaraji maintains that overall the mills have improved the lives of young workers. Without money for a dowry, he says, poor girls end up married to old men or taken on as second wives. This system has produced healthy mothers for the nation. Chitra, the mill worker, says she told her parents after six months that the work was making her sick and she wanted to quit. She says her family told her to hold on to the job a little longer. So Chitra says she just went to work and didn't bring up the subject again. Ramesh from the NGO SAVE says there have been times when parents collude with the mills. The girls were uh, uh, running away from the hostel to their uh, native place and the parents bring them back. So that is one uh, issue we are trying to address at the community level to change their mindset also. Or at least improve the lives of the girls one by one. One of SAVE's partners intervened in Chitra's case. They persuaded Chitra to quit the mill and go back to school. She lost all the money the mill had withheld from her paychecks. Chitra says her parents have agreed to sell some of their land to come up with her dowry. For The World, I'm Michael May. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Newsweek created a special Twitter hashtag to go with its provocative Muslim rage cover. Unfortunately for the magazine, the hashtag has now inspired jokes at Newsweek's expense. I uh, really enjoyed seeing people just taking this hashtag and mocking it. That story and much more just ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. The wave of anti-American violence in the Middle East may not be over anytime soon. Today, al-Qaeda's branch in North Africa called for more attacks on U.S. diplomats in the region. The terror group also urged more protests against the anti-Islam amateur film that sparked the unrest in the first place. The outrage sweeping Muslim countries has been dominating international news. The most recent cover of Newsweek magazine, for example, was simply titled Muslim Rage. It was accompanied by a picture of outraged Muslims. It was presumably taken during one of the recent protests. And then on Twitter, the magazine tried to elicit reaction to the image on the cover using the hashtag Muslim Rage. Hashtags are a way of directing and organizing a conversation on the social network. But Newsweek's Muslim Rage hashtag quickly got co-opted quite humorously. I'm not going to lie. I love a good hashtag. That's Lila Sala, a Lebanese-American who's currently volunteering at refugee camps in southern Lebanon. An active Twitter user, she joined in the chorus of those who poked fun at Newsweek's hashtag. I asked her how she first reacted to the Newsweek cover. It did not depict Islam fairly. I mean, they used a man with a beard, an angry man, just like showed this very third world person just ready to fight the world. And, you know, as someone who lives in a predominantly Muslim country, this is not Islam to me. Well, I think it looks like what Newsweek was trying to do in the headline there is Muslim rage. What it was trying to do is is uh, is provoke a discussion about the protests that have happened in the in the wake of the release of this film that was made by uh, a few Americans that was so insulting to so many people, particularly people who are of the Muslim faith. So in in response to the cover, Newsweek itself said, well, why don't you take on the issue of Muslim rage and, and presented this hashtag Muslim rage on Twitter, inviting people mm-hmm. to write in as you did. Can you tell us what the tweet was that you wrote in response to uh, Newsweek's request? I left a couple of them, but the one that got really popular was um, lost your kid she had at the airport. Can't yell for him. Muslim rage. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine being yeah, in an airport can, with. <laughs> you can't yell for him because of his name. Of his name, yeah, which is actually a common name here, and it's not just used ex- exclusively by Muslims. It's used by many people, Arabic speakers. Because you're not going to yell jihad in a in an airport. <laughs> no. <laughs> what was well, you said? You presented another one too. You uh, wrote a couple of tweets. What was another? One left by a. Tweet Amro Ali, where he says, I get angry when the self proclaimed uh, MSN messenger pops up. There can be no other messenger. <laughs> of course, he's t- talking about uh, Prophet Muhammad, he's the ultimate messenger. Another one was left by a friend called Remy Kanazi, who is a Palestinian poet, where he said, just add nighttime and glow sticks. It goes from Muslim rage to Muslim rave. To Muslim rave, like a rave party. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, what's your take on this? We don't know how many of these were actually written by Muslims. It looks like kind of like a sardonic response to what Newsweek was trying to do, and that is have a discussion about Muslim rage. So what, for you, how do you... As as uh, as a uh, Lebanese American woman, how do you read what's happening there? Well, I very much enjoyed seeing people just taking this hashtag and mocking it, and mocking the the Newsweek magazine picture. And um, for me, it really shows how 
people are just so unaffected by the stereotypes that are being thrown at Islam, especially now. We're, we're sort of vulnerable because of this movie. We were attacked initially. I mean, this is how I feel personally. We were attacked initially with this movie trailer, and yet we are still perceived as barbarians, even though they were attacking someone who is so dear to us, our prophet. And we were still able to find humor and we we're still able to find laughter. I'm happy that we were able to find something positive in this. Nice to talk to you. Leila Salah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. To read how some Twitter users are reacting to the Muslim rage hashtag, just go to theworld.org. Now, lots of folks in the West have questions about Islam and about life in a Muslim country. For instance, questions like what exactly are Muslim women required to wear? You might be surprised that the answer is not that straightforward sometimes. Take Rana Jarboa. She's a 30-year-old Saudi who at different times has lived in America, Bahrain, and Lebanon, as well as in Saudi Arabia itself. As a Muslim, Rana usually wears the hijab, a headscarf that covers all or part of her hair. She does not normally wear the niqab. The niqab is a cloth that covers a woman's face, which is common in Saudi Arabia. But Rana says that she grew tired of people staring at her when her face or her hair were exposed. So she tried an experiment. She wore the full niqab. I went into the coffee shop that I go to the, like almost every day, and I just couldn't say hello because it would kind of, <laughs> I don't want to explain to them about my experiment. So I did. So I just had to, it felt weird. And I would like go to places where I usually go to. And I, I like, I see people I'm familiar with and I have to just avoid and not interact with them. And they probably have no idea that that was who I am under those, under the black, all the blackness. So, so that, that to me was, was the most, uh, it, it was the heaviest part of the experiment, experiment because it felt like, our interaction as humans is so limited because of this piece of cloth. So it's not really a protection. Uh, uh, it's, it's actually even more of a safety hazard than, than, it, than a protection or, or modesty. What you know, do you mean? Some, how, how so? I mean, if we all wore scarves, I mean, if we all wore masks or if we all wore, wore, wore the niqab, I mean, then, you know, we, none of us can be identified. So it actually gives a rise to... You know, you can you can uh, commit crime easier. I mean, I can go and graffiti on a wall, uh, and no one would know who I am, and I can run. Although at the same time, what we hear is that according to the tradition, one of the things that the the full face veil does is to keep women safe. That it's a protective device. Did you not feel though somewhat safer in the way people, particularly men, treated you? Not at all, because uh, I basically realized with this experiment that there's a subtle language that is made easier with this piece of cloth. I mean, when I walk in a park, people still try to pick up women and even they tried to whisper to me. And and then I, I spoke to people about this, people, Saudis, and they told me that, yeah, this doesn't change. You know, they, this still happens. They still interact. They still meet up. Um, and, and the fact that they wear the niqab is only making it easier because their uh, name or their reputation is concealed. It's a little strange, though, because it's, uh, you know, nobody knows who you are. So if you're being, say, propositioned, they could be propositioning anybody. That's exactly why it makes it easier. So, so was there any case where you really did feel safer, though? No, not safer. At first, it felt just liberating for me to walk without being stared at, because that's what I'm used to in Riyadh. I get stared at a lot because I'm definitely not uh, your usual person strolling on the streets, you know. So I, I felt 
like, okay, nobody's staring at me. Uh, that was the first, you know, first day I felt the difference. But otherwise, I didn't feel any safer. I mean, it's, uh, it was the same. Did you feel more Muslim when you were wearing the, the, the full headscarf, the abaya, the face covering entirely, your face covered entirely? Absolutely not. Um, I, I, uh, the niqab has absolutely nothing to do with uh, Islam. It's a traditional and cultural uh, practice. The niqab is completely different from the hijab. The hijab is covering your hair and it exposes your face. The niqab does not expose your face. The hijab is, according to some interpretations, uh, imposed in uh, Islam. The niqab, on the other hand, is not. It's not an Islamic practice. Renara Jaboa, thank you very much. Thank you. Renara Jaboa is a blogger in Saudi Arabia. We have a link to her blog about her niqab experiment at theworld.org. We're going to turn to Russia now and its most dangerous region, the North Caucasus. Nearly every day, there are reports of new violence from Dagestan and Ingushetia, places where there's an ongoing Islamist insurgency. In Chechnya, though, the violence has decreased. But the man who runs the republic, Ramzan Kadyrov, has been accused of human rights abuses and of ordering the killing of political opponents. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg traveled to Chechnya and filed this report. At a concert in Grozny, a children's choir sings about a former Chechen president who was blown up by the rebels. The subject matter isn't pleasant, but the singers are stunning. The girls in white headscarves and beautifully embroidered purple dresses. The boys with daggers and fake ammunition strapped to their coats. Then the son of the assassinated president takes the stage and the applause. His name is Ramzan Kadyrov. He's running Chechnya now and he's the most powerful man in the North Caucasus. The Kadyrovs were once rebels themselves till they switched sides. Since then, the Kremlin has relied on Ramzan and his personal army to put down the insurgency. And so far, the plan has worked. Today, Grozny echoes to the sound not of bullets, but of popcorn machines on street corners. There are sushi bars, skyscrapers, and a brand-new soccer stadium. But the man who's overseen this revival is highly controversial. Human rights groups accuse Kadyrov of persecuting critics. And court papers in Britain have revealed that MI5 considers him responsible for the deaths of political opponents. When I met Ramzan Kadyrov in the grounds of his presidential palace, I asked him if that was true. They say that Kadyrov is a bandit. If there is an incident in Europe, they say Kadyrov's behind it. If someone's cow dies, Kadyrov's to blame. If a chicken is not laying eggs, it's Kadyrov's fault. They are prepared to do anything to blacken Kadyrov's name and tell the world that Kadyrov is a bad person. I tell them, prove it. There are claims that you have prepared hit lists of your opponents. 
The person who makes this claim is schizophrenic. I swear to Allah, that idea would never come to my mind. There's concern, too, about religion. Through mosques and schools, Ramzan Kadyrov is promoting what he calls traditional Islam. It's making Chechnya feel less and less part of Russia. There's no alcohol here in the shops. There are segregated sports facilities for men and women and a stricter dress code. One woman told me she'd been threatened for not wearing a headscarf. She's deeply worried by Ramzan's policy of Islamization. My niece said that a man came to her nursery school. He told all the children to ask their parents whether or not they pray and then report back to him. He said that if they don't pray, the parents and children will go to hell. I'm terrified. I think 10 years from now, we'll have raised a whole generation of religious extremists. Back at the concert, it's time for the Chechen anthem. No matter how unfair the wildfire of injustice they sing, you Chechnya kept falling and rising again. Chechnya is rising again, but it's unclear where it's heading. It certainly feels like it's drifting further and further from Moscow. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg reporting from Chechnya. a very large backpack for our GeoQuiz today. That's because we're looking for the name of a very long hiking trail, more than 10,000 miles long. It's not finished yet, but activists envision a horseshoe-shaped network of trails that wraps around the North Atlantic Ocean. The idea is to follow the path of mountain ranges that have a common geology. The Appalachian Mountains and, of course, the Caledonians and that anti-Atlas in Morocco were all formed around the same time. When the, the plates collided, the North American, Eurasian, and African plates collided about 250, 200 million years ago. So, spectacular mountains on both sides of the North Atlantic. What's the name of the hiking trail that would unite them? Find out right after we take a break. Music worth a listen from Europe coming up. This is The World on PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS.
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Hikers from around the globe have been collaborating over the past few years on an ambitious goal. They want to create an international Appalachian Trail. It would span not just North America, but Europe and maybe Africa as well. Paul Weisall is one of the International Appalachian Trail, or IAT, organizers. Now, the idea behind this is basically to extend the trail internationally. First, tell us where that whole idea comes from. Well, of course, as you know, the Appalachian Trail in the U.S. has been around for quite a number of years, I guess 80, 85 years. And in 1994, a group in Maine, New Brunswick, and Quebec decided to extend unofficially the Appalachian Trail into Canada, where the Appalachians extend all the way to Newfoundland. 2009, we decided to extend, hey, you know, let's, let's go to Europe because the Appalachians or similar age mountains with the same basic uh, geological cause also exist in Greenland, the Scandinavian area, as well as Western Europe and the anti-Atlas mountains of, of Morocco. So we decided to extend to all the former Appalachian regions. And now we extend currently into Greenland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands, England, Scotland, Ireland, uh, Spain, France, and hopefully before too long, Morocco and Portugal. So you're saying that the Appalachian Trail, that there's actually kind of a pathway that's been cut that extends all the way through those countries? Well, each country has its own, uh, I guess, trail system. Of course, in North America, we're, we're newer area, uh, less populated. Of course, we have to, uh, to cut newer trails. Uh, certainly in Newfoundland, where, where we have a low population and quite a large area. Although, of course, in some countries like Greenland and Iceland, where they don't have any trees, you don't really have to cut trail. You, you more or less have to identify a route and mark it with cairns and so on. What would it be like if someone is going to do the entire Appalachian Trail as you envision it internationally? What would that be like? Oh, that would be, probably be a, a lifetime uh, quest. Certainly it would be, a, I guess, a, a sectional hike as opposed to a continuous single hike because, of course, the distances will be quite great. You'd have to actually fly to a number of these sections, certainly the islands in the North Atlantic. But at any rate, we have everything from you know, glaciers to volcanoes to fjords, hopefully in Morocco soon, deserts. And of course, we have uh, you know, interesting heritage and history and, and so on, for instance, in Ireland. And certainly in, in Canada, a lot of the hiking would be wilderness hiking. And so there'd be a different experience based on where you are. And of course, some of the trails will be really well-trodden, well-developed, whereas you know, some of the other areas, they'd be more backcountry trails. That requires a big backpack, doesn't it? I'd say uh, for some, uh, depends on how, how big appetite you have, I guess. How big an appetite and how much, how much footwear you need. It is important to travel light if you can, though, because, of course, a pack gets heavier as you go. So how much of that international trail exists now? Well, it's, for us, it's hard to quantify because we're adding to it all the time. And, and so I'm guessing uh, that we have about 10,000 miles, give or take. For instance, in Europe, the North Sea trails of the Coast Alive group, those trails alone account for probably six to 7,000 miles. And so that's quite a long hike. So you yourself, maybe you can tell us, Paul, what you've been doing in the past couple of days. I know that you're helping to establish what you call this North Arm Traverse of the Appalachian Trail. Well, for us here in Newfoundland, uh, we're developing a seven-day hike. And last week, I had the opportunity to go in into the mountains in Grossmore National Park to, uh, to complete an important two-day link. By doing what? Well, we cut trail uh, through the scrub, the high mountain scrub. It's very difficult to cut because it's about five to seven feet high and it's very thick. It grows very thick together in, in sort of a web. Uh, and the moose and caribou create trails through them, but of course we need to widen them and so on because your packs and so on can get caught as you go through. You know, if you take your time and, and you don't have to fight through the scrub, it's easy enough to pass through. And then, of course, you get this fantastic views of the mantle 
and the you know the the mountaintop lakes and ponds and so on. Uh, and we also have some huge waterfalls here. But the goal for us is to develop a hut to hut, three to four backcountry cabins. So at the end of every day, there's a nice, comfortable cabin where people can have a shower and a bed and a good cooked meal. You know, without trails in the backcountry and so on, you really are limited to seeing what you can from the side of the road or the highway. And, you know, you just pull over your car and you point and you look. But until you can actually get off roads into these beautiful areas, you really can't see what we have. And that's true from one end of the Appalachian Trail in the south all the way to hopefully Morocco. Paul Weisall, one of the organizers of the International Appalachian Trail, which is the answer to our geo-quiz. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you very much, and uh, hope we'll see you on the trail sometime. Only if I stock up on trail mix. Uh, We'll have some terrific pictures of the Newfoundland section of the International Appalachian Trail. You will be able to see them at theworld.org. Now, in case you're thinking of going on a long hike now, how about a little new music for the trip? Here's a suggestion from music journalist Marius Asp in Oslo, Norway. For this edition, I've chosen the perhaps most critically lauded Norwegian album so far this year, The Silicon Veiled by the 26-year-old singer-songwriter Susanna Sundfør. These dramatic, ambitious songs are perfect examples of pop and art music living in challenging but rewarding coexistence. Let's listen to the first single off the album. This is White Foxes. to White Foxes from Susanna Sundfors' album The Silicon Veil, the first single and easily the most accessible among these ten tracks, but nevertheless a dark and somehow threatening song. The Silicon Veil is Sundfors' third album. She started out as a more conventional piano-based singer-songwriter with a self-titled debut album in 2006, which earned her comparisons to usual suspects such as Joni Mitchell and Carole King. But gradually, she has evolved into a more complex and stubbornly original songwriter. The synthesizer is the prominent instrument this time around, as evident on Rome. several stark moments from Norwegian artist Susanne Sundfors' third album, titled The Silicon Veil. As you may have noticed from these snippets, Sundfors' voice is powerful and expressive. It's easy to imagine Stevie Nicks in a post-apocalyptic landscape, facing the wasteland and singing her heart out. Now, while her lyrics do present a critical, sometimes pessimistic view on contemporary life, Susanne Sundfors is not all about gloom and doom. Check, for instance, the beautiful ballad When, and make sure you pick up the whole album, The Silicon Veil, as well.
Music by Norway's Susanna Sinford, chosen for us by guest DJ Marius Asp in Oslo. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. You've been listening to The World. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems, online at ritaallen.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.